Good morning, everyone. So glad that you guys are here. Amen. All right. We're glad to have more people in the room. As of some of you who are out there on Facebook, if you're only seeing about 30, it's because there are more people in the room, and that's good to see. So we've been talking about, um, you know, living beyond the grave and how important it is for us to see the components that exist in what we call the atonement of Jesus Christ, Christ's atonement, and of the perfect substitutionary atonement, and the components that existed, whether if it was a personality trait or is it sin in the grave. And we talked about perfectionism, and then we talked about condemnation or a critical spirit, and now today we're going to talk about anger and the cup of wrath and how God has set us free from all of these these, these, what we would call personality traits, we really believe, or I hope that you will see that they're really sin in the grave. And so the, the idea of it, understanding that Easter is about Jesus and the empty tomb, amen? When we say that he is risen, you, you respond. All right, that's good, because see, when you understand that we believe it, that he's risen, that the tomb is empty, then our lives need to change. Our lives need to be different. They can't look like they once did. They can't look like previous to Christ. There's got to be a transition. There's got to be transformation. And so an understanding about this empty tomb is so vital in our relationship. When we see this empty tomb, there's new life. No longer in that stinky, smelly old tomb like smelly socks when a kid leaves them in the room for a couple of days or left underneath the bed and you can't find them, or when all the socks are there and they just stank. It's not. It's not stinketh. It's not this kind of grave that we want to live. We don't live back in the grave. We want to live beyond the grave. We want to be able to be new where life is changed. But what represents that grave? Because we understand there are grave clothes that should remain in that grave. When Jesus rose, the grave clothes remained. We'll talk about that later but some crazy reason Christians are still walking around with their grave clothes. Now, you might say, well, what, what does that mean? That means that we're carrying the sin that should remain in the grave. Jesus, when he was in the grave and he rose from the dead, we no longer have to live in that sin anymore. And although we will sin, that's a guarantee, multiple times a day, too often more than we can imagine or we could admit, God is still there with forgiveness and compassion and mercy and joy, giving us forgiveness over and over and over again, but it doesn't give us a license to sin. So as we see that this empty tomb that you see right up in front of you, what does that ultimately represent? Well, today we're going to again talk about anger. Is, you know, is anger, is it a choice? Because we know it's an emotion, but is it a choice? Is it something we have? Or is it something we choose to have, uh, something that we choose too often? We need to talk about that because we have to look at the atonement and finding out what did Jesus do when he took the cup of wrath for you and I, and how the Father and the Son and the Spirit working together as three persons in one for the sake of offering us this incredible message, what we call the Gospels every day an Easter message. This is what it is. Easter message is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's, it's the beautiful gift that God has given us through his son that we could live in new life, that he can change us from a sinner to a saint. And we can walk in it even though we don't feel like we're saints or we live like saints. We can still walk with a position of being called saint. 
And so God wants to use us to make a difference for his kingdom. No matter what we're dealing with, God wants to deliver us out of it so that we can be a light to a world that's hurting. People are struggling. People don't understand how to get through their struggle. But you and I, when we learn, when we grow, when we grow intimately with God, then we can learn how to get through that struggle through the power of the Holy Spirit. So it was the Holy Spirit that was present, even so, delivering him and resurrecting him, Jesus, from the grave. So we have to ask this question. We'll have to go through it and unpack it just a little bit. So work with me here if you can. What is anger? What is anger? Well, anger is an active, is, is an active response of negative moral judgment against perceived evil. So we're going to look at this definition and just unpack it with five statements here. And we'll have to look at it just so as we look at it, number one is it's an active response. We know anger is an active response. It's anger is something that we do not ultimately have, it's something we choose to have. It's not that we wake up in the morning, we have anger, but when some situation comes around and things don't turn out the way that we want to, then anger is what follows because we choose to. We'll talk about that as we move along. Number two, it affects the whole person. It's a whole person response. It involves our entire person. When you have an improper diet or lack of sleep or lack of exercise, obviously it's going to affect something in you. You're going to get cranky. It's called cranky, right? You tell when your kids are cranky, oh, they're just cranky. Or like, you know, when the wife wakes up and says, oh, he's cranky again. Or the, or the husband's saying, oh, boy, she's in a cranky mood. It's because it's possible that when we're stressed, we're overwhelmed and we have so much in our plate. We're not eating well and we drink coffee more than we should when we drink a pot instead of just one cup because we're trying to catch up because we were up all late last night. If you're writing a paper and you're in college or you're up all night because you have an, a newborn, some of you have some newborns in this place, and uh, you, you begin to, it affects you and then it will create this where it obviously involves the whole person. Number three is that we see response against Anger reacts at something or someone, something or someone. If you own a business and one of your workers keeps making the same mistake and his or her response to you is very casual and rationalizes everything and blames everyone else, I know some of you who own a business who say, you're fired. <laughs> no, you're fired. And you run around and you start firing everybody because you react because it's not turning out the way that you want it to. Or when the wife has told the husband a thousand times, put your dishes in the dishwasher and the husband's still not doing it. Or when you come into the house and you have your dirty shoes from coming out outside and you mess up the whole house and then you just brush it off like it's no big deal. And then you put a leash on them and throw them in the doghouse. I mean, that's what you do. <laughs> or you hit your foot against a couch or a chair, and then start talking to the couch or the chair because you're angry that it was in your way. <laughs> and you start talking to it and saying, how dare you get in my way? I'm going to kick you again. And if you kick him again, you're going to be angry and you hurt yourself again. Again, it's all of that goes on. Then you have a negative moral judgment. We judge subjectively. We set a standard outside of the scriptures. Let me put my name in here. Bruno's rule, when it has been violated, we judge. We judge with an emotional response or even raise our voices a bit. 
because we don't like when someone violates our standard. So we set a standard, and when the husband and wife doesn't do it, or the child doesn't do it, or the person at work doesn't do it, or someone in your neighborhood doesn't do it, or a family member doesn't do it, we get angry. We don't understand why they don't see it the way that we see it. And then we judge them. And then we, we set our standard as the moral standard. This is the way it should always be, and you set that standard. And then we have number five here is perceived evil. See, our anger postures us against what we determine to be evil. It becomes personal with all offenders that must change or be punished or be removed in the name of so-and-so. So now when someone does something wrong, we're like, you know what? I, I don't understand. Why did they react that way? It's probably because um, they're trying to, you know, you, 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 maybe they're trying to get me. Maybe I, maybe I did something. Or you start to try to create that scenario in your mind and you try to protect yourself and you see some evil, possibly a perceived evil that's coming. And so we set that up because whether we are right or wrong, perception is reality. And when we perceive that evil has been performed against us, we react with anger. But we don't know. We assume. We're not sure. And you know that assumptions always get us in trouble. So we protect ourselves. We guard ourselves. And then we react with some anger because we're frustrated. And so all of that comes down to is anger an emotion or a choice? Well, obviously, it's an emotion. But is it a choice? Is it something that we choose to do or something that we have? See, when we try to disguise anger, we say things such as, I'm not angry, person. I'm frustrated with the way things are going right now. We try to label our anger as frustration, but others can see it through that. Such attempts are camouflaging our anger, only masking the problem in our core being. So sometimes what we do is we cover it up. We know it's there. We know we choose to be angry, and we let it, you know, kind of push it aside. And then we cover it up, and then we think we can be truly used of God as Christians when we're sitting in this anger, this harboring of bitterness and anger in our hearts. And then we kind of just set it aside and think, okay, well, God understands. I'm dealing with that. Let me go over here now. But God's saying, I want to deal with this over here. Well, Lord, not right now. I want to go over here. And you're battling with God because God's trying to open your heart. He's opening my heart when we're dealing with anger and frustration. Ultimately, we have to continue to realize that it's a choice made by a person. When a person feels violated or wronged, they choose to do it. And as we choose, we have to understand that we can't ignore this anger. We can't avoid the person that we're angry with. We can't tell others about that person. We can't slander this person or alienate them from your group because that doesn't fix anything. So when we're angry at someone because they have violated our moral standard, we have to be willing to deal with it. Even the Bible says for us to do that. But anger sets in. And we try to continue to disguise it. So what are some of the cores of this too? The core of our anger can be divorce. It can be financial troubles. It can be troubles with children. You can have a special needs child. 
and it can be very difficult. Joy and I went through that for years. At the beginning, when our child was born, into her first two or three years, we struggled. We went from crying, emotional crying, and anger and frustration because we didn't know what to do. We sat there and we just said, Lord, please help us. We don't know what to do, Lord. Even though my wife is an occupational therapist, it was so difficult, it was so personal. For us to see that our daughter couldn't even chew food at two years old. And we didn't know what to do until we said, Lord, we leave ourselves before you saying, God, lead us. And God continued to open doors and rescue us. We got a speech therapist to help us to get our daughter to start chewing. We had to mash all the food together. But you sit here and you're saying, Lord, I'm trying not to be angry, but I'm angry. (laughs) Why did you give me this child? Why did you give us this child? She's a gift from you, but Lord, what do we do? Or sometimes you have childhood drama or parental neglect. How many children today are angry and frustrated because of parental neglect or dysfunctional family? I can tell you that when we sang that song, he took graves, he made graves into gardens. I've seen that in my life. (laughs) Because I had lived in a home where there was parental neglect, dysfunctional family, still unfortunately to this day, and yet God has turned my life into a garden, a beautiful garden, because of his work. But it's not something I've done, it's just something I wanted to believe that God can do it, but God is doing it because he wants to use us. And it requires that choice of saying, or unmet emotional needs, absentee father, verbal, physical, or sexual abuse. Sometimes a husband is looking at porn, gets caught, and blames the wife because she's not meeting her need, his need. I mean, all of this, it's like we start to carry a grudge against God. All around the world, people are carrying grudges against God because of all the things that are happening to him. They just blame him for everything. But we as his people, we battle with that too because when things happen in our lives, we don't understand. We start to form an anger toward God. So here's a couple of questions here. Two questions regarding anger. One is this. Does God have a right to be angry? Does God have a right to be angry? Look with me to Matthew chapter 26, verse 36. I want you to open up your Bibles if you have your Bibles with you. Matthew 26. 36. I want you to just work with me here because this is, this is important. He's at Gethsemane, and Jesus is sitting here, and he's before with his two disciples were there with him. And in verse 36, it says, Then Jesus went with, with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And, t- and, and taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, He began to be sorrowful and troubled. He was troubled because he knew what was coming. The next day he was taking on the the wrath of God, going to the cross for your sin and my sin. And it says, then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, farther, he fell on his face and prayed. He said, my father, if it's possible, let this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Not my will, but your will be done. And he came to his disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so could you not watch just one hour with me? So here they were struggling to sit with Jesus. And there was a commitment to just hear from him. And now he goes on to say this. He says, watch and pray that you 
may not enter into temptation. But the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, for a second time, he went away and he prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. See, the first time he was like, he knew he had to take the cup. And the cup represented divine fury, divine judgment. In the Old Testament, it showed forth that when God, when his standard wasn't met, he would smite and kill people instantly. We even saw in the time of David with Ziah when the Ark of the Covenant in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 8, it was like he was sitting there and he said, don't touch the Ark of the Covenant. And Uzziah accidentally touched it and he died. God killed him. Because the standard was violated. God has wrath against sin because he's holy. So God has a right He has a right to be angry. He has a right because he is holy and just. But Jesus had to drink of this cup, meaning the wrath of God had to fall on him for you and I. Because of God's anger against sin, we couldn't take it. We couldn't please him with our death because it's not perfect. Jesus had to be the perfect substitutionary atonement. And all of death, all of this wrath had to be placed on him. And he had to die. He had to go to the cross for you and I. And he did it. He wasn't arguing with the Father. He wasn't questioning the Father. They weren't discussing what they decided before the time began, before all of that came into this earth and all of his creation. He didn't even question it. Jesus went selflessly with obedience, humbled himself, willing to die for you and I, to appease the Father's wrath against sin, so you and I could have access to God, and we could have peace with God. I smile because we have the joy, the assurance of eternal life. We have forgiveness of sin because Jesus was willing to go to the cross. Death was arrested, and my life began. And death was arrested at time because Satan wanted to get a hold. Satan wanted to believe that he overcome, that he finally won until Jesus died. And death was arrested. Jesus died and he overcame death. He overcame the penalty of sin, the power of sin, and ultimately the presence of sin. He overcame Satan. There is no more that we have to be concerned about. We have victory. That's the message of Easter. That the empty tomb, what it represents is redemption and victorious win for you and I. And now we can walk in it. We have the option to do it. So when we struggle with anger or judgment or we struggle with perfectionism, we can turn to the Lord and he can help us through it. There's hope for us. God is willing, and that's what Jesus did. He was willing when he went. He took on that wrath for you and I. But I think it's even deeper than that. I think when when it says that Jesus was troubled, I believe he was troubled Because he had to be separated from the Father. You have to understand something about the Trinity. It's harmonious in unity and intimacy. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are a crew, three in one. And Jesus never did anything on his own. Any initiative that he took, he had to make sure it was with the Father. Not because he needed to, but because they came together. And the Spirit glorified Jesus, and Jesus glorified the Father. And when he realized he had to go to the cross that he had to take upon the wrath of God, the anger towards sin, I think what happened was he knew he had to take it, but he was going to be separated from the Father. We know when we see this passage in Matthew 27, verse 46, it says, In about the ninth hour, Jesus cried, which the ninth hour is 3 o'clock, 
Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthan. That is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you separated yourself from me? He had to take sin upon himself so you and I could have a relationship with the Father. The beauty, the beauty of God, the beauty of this gift, the empty tomb that comes just shortly two days later after he's on the cross, the beauty of God that he would be willing, that the Father has, sat, has been satisfied because his wrath had been placed on his son. I mean, they were willing to separate themselves. I don't know about you. Have you ever been separated from someone that you love? <laughs> when you lose a parent, when you lose a child, when you lose someone in relationship, now can you imagine the father and the son? The intimacy that you and I we're supposed to reflect in a marriage, in a covenant marriage, is to reflect Christ's love for the church. But the intimacy that the Father and the Son and the Spirit have, that's even greater. And God longs that for us. He gives it to us. We have the hope of that. We could have that intimacy. You know, the kind of intimacy where you're accepted just the way that you are. All your flaws, all your inadequacies, all your weaknesses. Every bit of it, when you struggle with anger or anxiety or stress or struggle with the life that you're living in or you just don't know if you're good enough, God is saying, you and I understand that that's the kind of relationship we can have with God, the intimacy, the vulnerability that we can say, God, I can be just the way that I am before you and you accept me just the way that I am. That's the love of God. That's the hope that we have. That's what the empty tomb truly means. And God was willing to do that by sending. That's why anger represents jealousy and pride and judgment and reactive responses. For 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, For our sake he made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is God offering us a merciful, compassionate hope. And now... We don't have to have a grudge with God, but we do. At times we do. We don't like the way he allows things to happen. So then I ask this question. When is it right to get angry? <laughs> I mean, when is it right? All right, we're, we're, we're going to turn to, you know, this famous passage that we know, this verse that we often read, especially when we want to be okay to get the allowance to be angry. Now, we're allowed to be angry, obviously. I'm not saying that. We're allowed to be angry because we're, God has allowed us to sin. We're in a, when we're in a field, and if we would liken it to a football field, there are boundary lines, but we're going to fail. We're going to drop balls. We're going to, you know, we're a quarterback. We're going to throw interceptions. If we're a running back, we're going to fumble the ball. We're going to miss blocking assignments if you're a lineman. I mean, at any time, we're going to make mistakes. Sometimes a penalty flag is going to get thrown on us, but we have to get back in the huddle and go play. God allows for all that. But even if God allows us to be angry, do we have a right to be angry? And that's why I love looking at this passage. Uh, when I look at it, I says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity for the devil. Even verse 27, it says, don't give an opportunity for the devil. So the Greek word for anger is intense expression of inner self, often expressed as a strong desire, passion, passionate longing. <clears throat> Even Aristotle 
classified as you can have the passion to do what is right, or this word can mean the passion to murder someone. In the Old Testament, the word means nose, like N-O-S-E, the nose on your face. So anger means nose because it's derived from a verb to snort. You know, you're snorting because you're, you're not angry. I'm going to go get this person or in the animal when it's snorting to get its prey. You know, it's like that, you know, that wild animal that's ready to get it. But that's what the word really means. And so some of us can get to that place when we get really angry and we're frustrated. You know, when my father passed away 20 years ago, he was in a hospital bed. And he had multiple strokes, many strokes, but... It was ultimately his demise. Um, he died within 12 days of his first stroke. And I had to, tr- my wife and I and kids, we had to travel all the way from Dallas. And we got there. My brothers and I were in the hospital. My mom was there. And my father was laid out really struggling. And um, what had happened was um, my mom was just trying to be the good wife that she was, trying to help my father because he obviously couldn't speak English. And she was trying to communicate to help the nurse. Well, as the nurse came in and they were trying to talk, the nurse started yelling at my mom and um, got to the point where she didn't stop yelling at her. It was really strange. And so my brother and I looked at each other. All three of us kind of looked over at each other. We're kind of figuring out, right, who's going to step up and say something? And I'm waiting for my other brother to do it, who's the crazy one. I see, and he's like, you know, didn't do anything. And I looked at the other one who's not as crazy, and I'm in the middle. So I'm like, okay, what do we do? So I had to speak up. And obviously, when I spoke up, it was not appropriate. And I had to s- simply just firmly say to don't you ever talk to my mother that way. I don't who gave you the permission to ever raise your voice to my mother. Nobody does. And obviously, I was angry. My brothers had to pull me out of the room. The nurse was crying. My mother goes, that boy's always protecting me. But I didn't do the right thing. I got angry and I sinned. I told my friends, and they were like, no, man, you had a right to be angry, man. You had a right. No, no, I didn't have a right to be angry. Because he, she demeaned my mom, which in, in essence is it demeaned me, and my pride was hurt, and I reacted. I chose to react. Um, it was sin. It's, I could rationalize it. I could cover it up. I can say, oh, well, I had every right. I don't care what you think. I have a right to be angry. But I don't. And I did not fulfill that verse very well. But the only thing that ha- happened was I was able to apologize to the nurse. And we teared up, both of us. I had teared up saying, I am so sorry. It was just terrible. I was a terrible witness to my brothers. I allowed my anger to get the best of me because I chose to do so. I say this vulnerably before you because sometimes we think we have a right to be angry and we don't. We choose to be angry, and it could be a better way to handle it. Aristotle said this, anybody can become angry, that is easy. But to be angry with the right person to the right degree at the right time for the right purpose in the right way, that's not within everybody's power, and it's not easy. It's not easy. So do we have a right to be angry? Well, we have to ask the question, and now we have to ask another question. What's righteous anger and unrighteous anger? Because I can say it's righteous anger when you violated my standard. She violated my standard. The nurse did. 
I didn't like what she did. You know what my standard was? Don't you ever talk to my mother in any other way but in kindness. You talk to my mother and, dis and disrespect her, I'm going to come after you. But that was my standard. God's, that's not a biblical standard. It was my, it was not righteous anger. It was unrighteous anger. But righteous anger sets in a little bit differently. And so we have to understand that righteous anger, I have some criteria here. The first one, that it must be a reaction to sin and not selfishness. See, it wasn't a reaction to sin. It was a reaction of my selfishness. And righteous anger is an offense against God and his word. Righteous anger is always motivated by love for people and focuses on destroying the disease of sin in order to heal and save people. Unrighteous anger, obviously, is motivated by selfishness and focusing on punishing, hurting, or destroying people. That's what unrighteous anger is. Number two, it remains focused on God and does not, and his concerns, not mine. It remains focused on God and not what concerns me. You know, righteous anger is always for focus on his righteousness, and there's no rationalizing any sin. Righteous anger reacts to draw people back to God, not to punish them or hurt them. It's not jealousy or arrogance that's its driven force. And what happens is we have to understand that God is a gracious God, compassionate and loving, that is slow to anger. So see, God has a right to be angry, but he's slow to anger. Isn't that beautiful? God is slow to anger. We who are, we have no righteous standard. We're not holy, and we want to quickly be angry. We're not slow to anger at times, but God is. Because he's compassionate, he's loving, he wants us to reach people. So when he sees someone hurting, when he sees someone that maybe there's a perceived evil or judgment or moral judgment that's been placed against us or violated against us, we don't, he doesn't immediately react. God begins to do a work where he says, I'm going to be slow to anger because I want to reach this person with compassion and love. See, sometimes we have to understand when people are angry, they're just hurting. They're empty. They have flaws. They're weak. And they're just trying to get attention. I learned that growing up, realizing when my father and I would go at it together and we would argue often and even yell and scream at each other, it was because my father couldn't speak English and he was, there was just something there. He couldn't communicate. And it wasn't until 25 years old that God showed me and revealed that to me and I went to him and apologized to him. Because how do you break down anger? How do you break down bitterness? How do you break down harboring of, of, of years and years of this? You go and ask forgiveness. And you say, God, I want you to do a work in me. Why? Because Jesus took it all. I shouldn't live like that. None of us should. Because we all struggle with anger. Number three, it's got to be remaining. We have to remain self-controlled, not out of control. Sometimes what happens in marriages, sometimes what happens in relationships is that anger is what's breaking down all the marriages, even in Christian marriages, I'm dealing with some of my friends right now are dealing with really difficult marriages. 
to the point where one of the wives wants to walk out and they're separated. And I've seen friends divorce all because of miscommunication, of anger. Who wants to be right? Who wants to get their way? I'm going to be right. I'm not going to ask for forgiveness because that means I'm weak. And I don't want to be weak in this relationship. I'm going to be the strong one and I'm going to get my way. And I'm going to be able to tell you, hey, you know what? It was because of me. But that never works out in a marriage. <laughs> and it breaks it down. See, it's got to be self-control. So when you see something, we have to be slow to speak, right? <laughs> Quick to listen, slow to anger. Because our righteousness never produces the righteousness of God. Our anger never does that because it's unrighteous. So if we have a right to be angry, it should always be in an area where it's righteous. It's, it's devoted to the scriptures. Now look at Jesus. If you look with me to John eleven thirty three, John eleven thirty three. I need you to turn there when Lazarus was in the tomb. If you, if you have your Bible there. Chapter 11, verse 33, and it says this, when Jesus was with Mary and Martha, he says, when Jesus saw her weeping, the sister of Lazarus, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved. That phrase right there in Greek would mean that God was angry. Jesus was angry. Do you know, deeply moved in extra biblical Greek, they see it that the word derives from anger. So Jesus was angry. And hurt that they were crying over Lazarus' death. But scholars believe that he was even angry because there was unbelief that was in his midst. Because the sin, the fallen world all around him, he was angry. Verse 38, then Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb. He was angry. So even Jesus, but he was self-controlled. He was, and throughout the scriptures you see of episodes where he turns over the tables with the money changers. And yes, he, he was dramatic, but he had a right to do that because there was sin against his father. So it was righteous anger. So how can we truly find righteous anger? What can we have righteous anger against? Injustice, sex trafficking, pornography, sexual abuse, physical abuse, racial injustice, and inequality. Not equity, inequality. See, that's what we should have righteous anger, but sometimes we don't because we try to unfold it and say, no, I want to get the, I want to understand their motives. What do they mean by all that? God didn't call us to just unpack people's motives. We should be angry at it because the Bible says, and it speaks against, it's biblical justice. It's imagu Dei. That's what righteous anger is about. Something that violates God's word or his character. We should be angry when people make a mockery of Jesus. We should be angry. But anger shouldn't just be in a response. We should do something about it, right? We should do something about it. If we don't like something, let's do something about it. Let's be the helping hand. Let's be the bridge. That's how we can eradicate even frustration. Righteous anger can be responded because it's motivated by love. That's what we got to look at. That's what it comes down to. So... If you find yourself angry, first ask, with what am I angry? Is it because you love someone or you see them injuring themselves or something injuring them and you are angry at the process that's causing harm? Or are you angry at some, at some wrong, actually, actual wrong or perceived and that's happening to you? Is your motive to act in love or... To save that person or 
is your motive to act in vengeance, to punish and harm another. That's what it comes down to. Because if it's the latter, you're living in the grave. We're living in the grave. So we have to understand that this is the part of the grave that we want to gather. See, when we live beyond the grave, when we leave <coughs> our grave in the tomb, the clothes, grave clothes in, the, in our tomb, in the tomb to hate sin, we choose to hate sin, die to self, and live for Christ. That's what we do. So we've got to start realizing that anger needs to be left in the grave. That's what the empty tomb is about. We can't live any longer in this anger and be harbored by bitterness and judgment when God is calling us to live beyond it. And when we live beyond it, we can see that the grave clothes are no longer there. That's why in John 20, verses 8 through 9, as we see that John and Peter were running to the tomb, when they heard that Jesus was no longer there, they went to the tomb to check. And Peter went down, and there's like a three, four, I think it was like three feet, they say that, there's an opening. So you have to crawl in to look, and they saw the grave clothes in there. But some scholars believe that Jesus actually rose through the grave clothes and out of the tomb. So the grave clothes just, just sat there in his position. And what happened was John went in there and saw that as well. As P after Peter did, John went in there, and John, the Bible says that he believed. How about us? When Jesus was in the tomb and he was wrapped up in grave clothes, you and I, as the Bible says, we are in him, in Christ. And so in Christ means that when he was in the tomb, we were in the tomb with him because of our sin. And then when he rose from the tomb, we too will rise with him, meaning we are rising with Jesus. When we have trusted in Christ, we are rising with Jesus. So that means the grave clothes should remain there. But why is it that we walk out with our grave clothes still on? <laughs> why is it that we still walk in our walk with God with anger and bitterness and harboring and unforgiveness and judgments all across and trying to say, yes, Lord, use me, but we're sitting with all this anger when Jesus said that I've given you new life. I've risen from the dead. Now in Christ, we have new life. We're to take those sins and lay them at the feet of Jesus, and then he forgives us and cleanses us from that sin. Then we can walk in newness of life, set free, no longer living in bondage or in the grave, but living set free. So the question is, are we living set free? Are we living with the hope of Christ, with joy and peace, with the assurance of eternal life? Do we live with a redemptive approach? Do we want to see people being redeemed? Are we slow to anger? Are we just harboring these bitterness and anger? And we're just wanting to flesh, just, just, to, just to set out and just share our anger and respond and react. See, God is saying, I have a right to be angry, but I'm slow to anger. And now that you're in Christ, you too must be slow to anger. Because that's when compassion comes in. That's when mercy comes in. That's when the joy of the Lord comes in. I love the statement from A.W. Tozer states this, Grave clothes represent the things we used to do when we were spiritually dead. Grave clothes represent addictions and wor worldly things that we hold on to. Grave clothes represent things in your past that you keep holding on to. Grave clothes represent patterns of thinking and living that are rooted in the sin 
old man nature all of us inherited from Adam. Grave clothes represent all, from our old worldly habits before we were born again. Grave clothes represent our limited beliefs and what God can do in our life. One problem is that some of our grave clothes are so comfortable, we don't want to take them off. So true. So true. So what can we do? This is how we can take our grave clothes off. Three things. Spend time with the Lord. Spend time and learn grace. That'll take away the harborness of bitterness and resentment towards others. Two, exercise gratitude. Be grateful. The more we realize how blessed we are, the less we're going to hold on to anger and bitterness. Number three, don't let the sun go down. Confront the anger. If someone has wronged you or offended you, confront them in love. Don't, don't, don't smile at them when you're hurting, when you know that they frustrated you. Go to them. Talk it out. Do you know God will use that and the relationship will grow? I want to encourage you this week as we are just celebrating Easter today. Let it be every day. And as we celebrate it, let's live set free, living away from the grave. Let's take the grave clothes off. Let's not hold on to anger. Let's not hold on to judgment or perfectionism. Let's live beyond the grave. Let's believe God to do a magnificent work in us this week. Let me take a moment and pray. Father, thank you. It's a weighty message, Lord, because Easter, we often celebrate Christ is risen from the dead. And we celebrate that the tomb is empty, which represents new life. You rose from the dead. And we too, when we pass from this life, we have the promise that we will be rising with you that we will rise from the dead, that we'll be in your presence forever. That is a promise of eternal life. And so, God, we want to thank you today that you've given us that hope, the hope today that no matter what we're struggling with, whether we're perfectionists, whether we have a critical spirit, whether we have a condemning spirit, whether we are sit in with anger and we choose to be angry, we harbor bitterness and resentment, we're angry at someone in our family, angry with a with a friend, angry with a husband, angry with a wife, angry with a child. God, you have called us to be set free. We don't have to live in the grave any longer. We can be set free by just confronting it. And if we don't get the response that we want to, we can continue to pray. But Lord, help us to not live in the grave any longer. Help us, Lord, to live beyond the grave. So, Father, we love you, and we surrender our lives to you, and we pray for your spirit to move in a mighty way. God, be glorified today. May we understand and know he is risen, for he is risen indeed, and may our lives show that transformational work. Redeem us, God, even today. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.